Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Happy Halloween, everyone, from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Tonight on The Breakdown, we're going to be focusing our show on the inescapable reality of living in California these past few weeks. And, of course, I'm talking about wildfires, blackouts, or as some call it, the new abnormal. Yeah, not the lightest fare, Scott, but we are going to try to talk Scary, a little though. bit about, yeah, seriously, how we got here, the politics of this whole mess, and what we could possibly do to fix things here in the Golden State, where it's honestly been a uneasy few weeks, to say the least. Um, We're going to bring in our expert on that in a little bit. But first, two important things really happened today on the House of Representatives floor. Yeah, the House voted along party lines uh, pretty much to formalize the impeachment inquiry into President Trump over the kicking and screaming of Republicans. We'll get into that in a minute. But Marisa, there was also a floor speech today that's getting a lot of attention. California Congresswoman Katie Hill's goodbye speech. Right. So you may have heard that Katie Hill is resigning her seat. Um, This is after a series of explicit photos were leaked to conservative media outlets. And she was accused in those articles of having affairs with both a campaign staffer and a congressional aide. She denies the affair with the aide, which would be very serious under House ethics rules, Um, although she did admitted to, quote, in an appropriate relationship with a separate campaign staffer. Um, More broadly, though, she says she's the victim of revenge porn, essentially, by her husband, who she's going through a divorce with, um, pretty nasty divorce. Um, Um, And she talked about this as part of a pretty emotional speech today. The forces of revenge by a bitter, jealous man, cyber exploitation and sexual shaming that target our gender and a large segment of society that fears and hates powerful women have combined to push a young woman out of power and say that she doesn't belong here. And, of course, um, Katie Hill also went on to sort of link this to what she called the predator in the White House, you know, talking about the allegations that have made against Trump and, of course, Brett Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Clarence Court Justice, Thomas, others. Not by name, you know, but and by I inference. Think, I yeah. mean, this has just been, obviously, such a messy sort of couple weeks for Katie Hill, um, who we should say we had thought we were going to have on the breakdown. We did. We had an interview scheduled with her when we were back in D.C. and our producer, Guy Marzarati, had a call just a day before saying she'd lost her voice because she was back in her district 
and there were wildfires and the smoke was a problem, but now we know there was a right, different the next kind of day smoke. This, yeah, this yeah. broke. Yeah. I, I mean, but it is, it's raising some interesting issues, I think, about this issue of revenge porn, about, and but it's also raising some interesting generational issues. I mean, she's been actually gotten defended by Matt Gatz, one of the most conservative kind of bomb throwers in the House, who is a younger Republican from Florida. Um, and of course, a lot of, I think, older members really just not wanting to touch this. Yeah, well, and of course, there's a lot of hypocrisy to go around, not just uh, on Katie Hill, but also on the impeachment stuff. We'll get into some of that. But, you know, and Nancy Pelosi was quoted as, you know, basically being very sympathetic and telling her the caucus when she met with them to warn younger members and even kids, like, not to put this stuff on your phone and share it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, which, although Katie, what she says is that you somebody know, these, else recorded somebody it. Somebody else with, recorded yeah. this without her knowledge that, there, that she is basically stepping down because she was worried that they would continue to leak out. And I mean, there are some really shady elements. Uh, ethics aside, we can talk about the, the alleged affair but of the way this came out, um, including the fact that one of the people who, quote unquote, broke the story was an actual campaign staffer for the Republican that Steve Katie Knight. Hill bought, uh, beat last year. Um, you know, this really did come out in some very, you know, n- not the most sort of reputable outlets, maybe yeah. we could say. Well, you know, and, and that's a whole thing, too, these days, like what is reputable and what isn't. And, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi. Although she clearly was um, taking Katie Hill under her wing, she was a, had become a real protege of Nancy Pelosi. You have to think, too, when all this broke, she must have gone to the speaker and said, what should I do? And I think if the speaker had said, hey, hang in there, we're going to stick with you, she'd still be there. But, uh, you know, with the impeachment inquiry underway, clearly they felt it would be too big a distraction. Yeah, and I do think that, um, you know, one thing, obviously there's this rush for people to run for this seat. Um, it was a really big win for Democrats and, and a decisive one in 2018. She won she, by nine points. Yeah, in a in a district that, you know, had been held by a Republican for a while. Um, but I, I do think that, I, I, I'm not sure this is the last we'll hear from Katie Hill. She sort of seemed to indicate that in her yeah, speech. Yeah, you definitely got the sense she may be, you know, once she gets her feet back on the ground and uh, deals with all this with her family and everybody else, she, she could run again. And who knows, uh, depending on, uh, you know, th- things have... A, a way of looking different in the rearview mirror sometimes. Yeah. I do think, though, that the, what you said about you know Nancy Pelosi sort of warning people, and Katie Hill brought up this idea that this could really deter other young women from running for office. Um, but it is an interesting question, like in the age of social media, where we have people in college now who did not grew up, you know, with the internet around them their entire lives. I don't know. Does the culture change? Are, is something like this going to be that sort of defining moment in well, another like decade? Pot, remember. <laughs> when smoking pot, like I inhale, I didn't. Was it? What he say? I, I, I tried inhale, it, but I didn't yeah. inhale. You know, nowadays <laughs> you've got you know Barack Obama and everyone else since saying, well, yeah, I tried it, didn't like it, or whatever. You know, but uh, Gavin Newsom still says he hasn't tried pot. But you know, it's, so the, yeah, the cultural norms change. It does take uh, sometimes the politics <laughs> a little longer to change. However, all right, we've jumped the shark into cannabis. <laughs> we're going to take a short break. When we get back, we're going to talk with Stanford's climate and energy expert Michael Wara. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we have Stanford University's Michael Wara here with us. He's senior research scholar at the Woods Institute for the Environment and director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program. That was a mouthful, Michael. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's all a fancy way of saying you are... You've really become one of the go-to experts on this whole wildfire utility crisis in California, and we really appreciate you coming in. Well, thanks for having me on. So, like I said, you've been everywhere. You've been, like, in the New York Times. You've been on KQED. You've uh, advised the governor on this stuff. How did you get roped into all of this? Well, I come to this because I care a lot about energy and climate policy in California and recognized after the Napa-Sonoma fires in 2017 what a huge threat this was to all the work that had been done over the last decade, two decades really, to make air cleaner in California and then make California a leader on climate change. So I got interested in the problem. And the more you learn about it, the more complicated it gets and the more layers. And so it's become, you know, <laughs> that what is I, like the understatement of the century. <laughs> what are some of the things you think people should know but don't? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion about how to keep communities safe. You know, and and there is there are some pretty clear answers there that involve hardening homes and even just the five feet around homes and having communities take action together. Because even if I make my home safe, my if my neighbor's home isn't safe, the heat from that home igniting might burn down my house. Things like that. I think I think people are really looking for answers about how can I not have the fall in the Bay Area in Northern California, which is like the most lovely time of year. Be it a used time, to be, yeah. Yeah, be a time where you feel dread. Yeah. And we need to work our way out of that situation. So broadly, uh, because I think there's a lot of pessimism right now, and it's understandable. We've had now the third fall in a row of really scary conditions. Now these blackouts are happening. I mean, what offer us some optimism here, Michael. Like, is this a problem that we can solve our way out of when oh. we talk about the utilities and climate change and everything? I think we definitely can. And, and we can do it in ways that are actually really good for California. Um, the kinds of the kinds of changes we need to make to our communities, they aren't free. They'll cost money, but they'll also generate tons of jobs for Californians. You know, for for Californians maybe that don't have a college degree that really struggle in our job market, and they'll make our homes more comfortable. Especially if we help low income folks make these changes, which we need to to keep the whole community safe. Right? You can't just have the rich people do it. 
that doesn't help. You were on this uh, wildfire task force that Governor Newsom put together. Uh, talk about that and, you know, to what extent were the recommendations that they came up with, uh, have they been, you know, embraced? Well, you know, we, our goal was to figure out how to manage the costs that the state has experienced over the last couple of years, and especially to sort of develop a plan for the next decade or so, um, sort of until we think the utilities can do the things that they need to do to really reduce risk. And some of our recommendations were adopted by the state, um, especially uh, we, we made this recommendation to create sort of a wildfire fund that I think listeners should really think of as like an insurance policy. And with the idea that we wanted to protect ratepayers and victims from the impacts of fire, make sure that ratepayers don't see rates go up a lot from a big fire, make sure that victims aren't any, any more. But some people, of course, see that also as protecting the utilities from the costs, right? Well, I think, you know, the impacts of that do have, do do positive things for the utilities too. And that's, that's true. The utilities that were most in danger at the time that we were working were Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric, the Southern California utilities, which were threatened with kind of a big financial hits from ratings downgrades. And we averted that. I think that's a net win for customers because if the utilities are not investment grade, ultimately customers pay. So let's talk about PG&E because, you know, that's what you and I like to do together. Talk about PG&E. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of, I think, especially from media outside of California, but I think even within the state, a lot of sort of confusion about how we got here. Um, and I know that there's a lot of blame to go around. You mentioned home hardening and forest management. But I would love to really talk about PG&E and state regulators who I think are rightfully getting a lot of fingers pointed at them in this moment. Um can you talk about just sort of the structure of them? I mean, why is it? Because one thing that I think people don't understand is like there's a lot of like we need to make the shareholders you know feel pain that the ratepayers have been paying their rates and we all thought that that the utility was doing its job, and uh, but I mean, isn't every penny that they have really from us ratepayers to begin with? We talk, just talk yeah. base level. Here. So so utilities are heavily regulated by the state in which they operate. And that's to protect ratepayers because they're a monopolist who provides an essential service. So you don't want someone like that having free reign to charge whatever they want. Right. So since they were created, utilities have um, had their rates set or approved by utility commissions. And what that really means is that utilities can't charge customers money unless the commission approves that. And that also means that the spending plans that utilities undertake have to be reviewed in detail and approved by the commission. And there are opportunities for all stakeholders to get involved and argue about what's appropriate. So does that mean that everything that PG&E and any other utility has or hasn't done that they should have is really also, you know, part of the part of the blame there belongs with the CPUC? I think there is shared responsibility there. And but but I also think that the utility takes the lead. Right. So the utility comes to the commission with a proposal and then everybody argues about that proposal. There was a big miss in Northern California. Right. The, the, the PG&E didn't see this coming at them. Neither did the commission. This being wildfire that they were caused by them. Yes. They, um, you know, after the San Bruno accident, which 
many folks may remember this terrible gas explosion that killed eight people. Eight people I think. in 2010, yeah. Um, there was a big process at the PUC to think about the risks that utilities faced, and wildfire was identified. And but I think no one envisioned this kind of catastrophe, where we were burning down thousands of houses, um, where the cause was utility fires. So <clears throat> the governor's been everywhere this week, and he kind of uh, talked about this a little bit, um, and talking about PG&E and and the CPUC. Despite our fundamental differences between PG&E and uh, what I think has been decades of mismanagement that predate the current CEO, to be fair, and the PUC uh, that, frankly, was a little too cozy, respectfully, over the last few decades to the utilities that predates this administration, uh, that we still can find areas we work together. And so in the spirit of your question, I think we found that that balance. So it's interesting. I mean, I think that, as the governor alluded to, there's a lot of people who look at, say, the executive compensation at PG&E and the bonuses that get paid out and, you know, the shareholder profits. I mean, they're guaranteed a profit margin around nine to 10 percent, depending on the place. Right. Um, But there's also, you know, the fact that, like you said, that this this wasn't being seen coming. I, w- I wonder how you just assess the way you think the politicians have kind of been talking about PG&E. Is it fair? Are they being too hard on the utility, not hard enough? I think the utility deserves a lot of criticism. Like, let's be clear, right? They did not see this risk coming at them. Even after the Butte fire in 2015, they, they failed to take strong, evasive action. That was a very destructive fire. And after that, they should have reevaluated the situation, and they didn't. So they deserve a lot of criticism. Could you say the same about San Diego Gas and Electric or, you know, after the before the San Diego fire in 2007, Seven, I think yeah. that was? Well, I think, yeah, you know, San Diego didn't totally see this coming. But, but to their credit, after that fire, they said, we need to reinvent how we run our system to keep our community safe. And they didn't let their – there was no second fire after that 2007 fire. And I think that's highly significant. At the same time, I worry that we're getting too concerned about blame. We need to focus on solutions here. Like we need to get things going on the ground, changes happening, so that by next fire season, we are in a better place as a state. Can we do that without these power blackouts? I think the power blackouts are going to be a feature of California's energy system for at least the next several years, maybe more than that. Is there a way to mitigate that? Yeah, I, I, I think there is. You know, we need to look in a very systematic way at who is being blacked out and then develop programs to provide those people with effective backup power. We also need to harden the grid so ultimately we can black out fewer people. But to be clear, San Diego keeps people safe by still blacking out sections of their grid. 30,000 San Diego customers were offline during the recent Santa Ana event. And we should say, I mean, that's a much smaller utility, right? I mean, the area they cover is smaller, so their blackout imprint or footprint is going to be smaller. Um, If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're talking with Michael Wara. He is a climate and energy expert at Stanford. So we kind of alluded to this, but you talked about the San Bruno blast, and it's important to note, I mean, a couple just like points of fact here we have mentioned. PG&E's in bankruptcy, largely because of the last two years of fires that they are blamed for. Um, And they were 
taken to court, not just in terms of uh, the regulatory issues after San Bruno, but by the federal government. They're a felon. They're on felony probation. One of the things that the National Transportation Safety Board said after that was that the CPUC, the State Commission Overseeing Utilities, essentially place blind trust in operators to the detriment of public safety. And given the fact that, as we just mentioned, like SDG&E had a fire in 2007 that was pretty horrific. There was other SoCal fires. I mean, can you just talk about, like, how much of this is just everybody not seeing the forest through the trees, so to speak? Or is is there any evidence that PG&E, say, took our ratepayer money to do maintenance work that they never did. I mean, it, wh- wh- how how do you kind of think about what we have paid for and whether or not the utility and CPUC have been responsible with that money? Well, I think, um, you know, the first thing to say is the way I look at this problem is that there are multiple causes, and but that things probably would have been okay, but for climate change, hmm. right? And so what we're encountering here is is a situation where a way of doing things, a set of practices was safe, 20 years ago, and it's no longer safe today because the weather and the climate are changing. Um, that being said, like, did, did, did the utility do what it said it was going to do with the money? Well, the utility has a list of things they want to get done in any given year, and they have a, number, a certain number of dollars to do it and a certain number of personnel. They don't always get that work done. I, I don't know that there is evidence. Um, there may be some evidence but that I don't know of, but I don't know that there's evidence that they were actually like diverting money into dividends, for example, mm-hmm. um, that should have been spent elsewhere. When it comes to the CPUC, they have such a large menu of things that they are supposed to be overseeing, I mean, it's not crazy. just like it's it is crazy. And I mean, <clears throat> all the way down to Uber and Lyft, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really, I think in many ways should be a city function. I mean, w- in, in addition video to franchises. reimagining yeah, video <laughs> franchise, that's from their websites, like what? Uh, but, you know, as we reimagine PG&E's, which is the, what the phrase that the governor uses, should we also be reimagining the CPC? I think so. And, and I, I know in the governor's um, initial report on his actions around wildfire. He mentioned this as a core focus that he wanted to take was sort of reimagining the PUC's role. And and of course, like if you reimagine the utility, you kind of have to reimagine a regulator mm-hmm. that's so heavily involved in what the utility does. And so that should be a part of what we do. And, it, and certainly his appointment to the, be the president of the PUC is kind of a specialist in remaking agencies, right? Um, Batcher, before she was at the PUC, was in charge of trying to fix the DMV. The Maryville Batcher, who he yes. appointed relatively recently. All right. So you're emperor of California for a day. What happened? What What do you think needs to happen with PG&E and, and by extension, maybe some of the other utilities? But, th- but they are the biggest. They are the biggest problem, it seems, at this point um, for the state and, and for these blackouts and potentially for the, the fire we saw uh, burning in Sonoma these past few weeks. Well, I guess from my perspective, um, I, I'd, I'd love to see PG&E hiring uh, some folks to think about safety uh, from outside the utility industry. Mm. We need PG&E thinking about the problem of fire safety in the way that airlines think about safety, where a crash is unacceptable. And they're doing- Although, this is not a good week well, in saying Fair that. enough. I mean, yes. Fair <laughs> Boeing, you know, the, the CEO Boeing. is grilled over right. two days uh, well, in but Congress. Well, the, but the airlines and, and the way that they maintain aircraft and, you know, the airline operations have made flight an incredibly safe activity. It didn't used to be that way. And at a certain point, the airlines realized they weren't going to have a business unless they fixed that. And that's kind of where we are with PG&E. We need them thinking about how to, how to really raise the bar on safety. 
And there's a set of practices out in other industries that can't tolerate accidents for how to do that, but not so much in the utility industry. Why is that? And why is it that we're not hearing about this happening in Nevada or Arizona or, or you know, Oregon, other places with wildfires? Like, is it PG&E or is it something unique about California, do you think? Um, so one thing to note is that what is happening in other areas, NV Energy, the Nevada utility, is busy designing its own power shutoff program because really? it is terrified of what might happen in the Tahoe Basin. And the Oregon Utility Commission is also thinking about how they need to respond. What stays in California is unlikely to, or what started in California is unlikely to stay in California, given what the climate forecasts look like. So they're going to go to school on us, basically. Yeah, they can learn from our, we're the kind of first mover, unfortunately, when it comes to wildfire safety. And they're going to learn from us and hopefully adopt our practices and not have to confront the catastrophe that's occurred. And who's going to pay for these the changes that you're, you said earlier? You're optimistic there are things we could do. So where does the money come from to do those things? Well, I you, think Scott. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's only so many buckets, and they and they you know is how is a rate payer you're different from a taxpayer, right? And that's the question we really I think need to be thinking about is and you know should it be that folks in wildfire areas pay these costs? Are, should, does it make more sense to spread the costs out over a broader part of the state? Um, distributionally, should, should low-income people pay a, a smaller proportion of the cost? What's the best way to accomplish that? I tend to think we need to think outside of the electricity rate space and be starting to think about non-utility programs that are paid for out of tax dollars or bond finance, only because we can do that a lot faster. Right. I mean, you you may not have kids, but you still pay taxes that go to schools. You may not you know, use some of our social services, you do that. Um, so, you know, we've been talking a lot about PG&E and the safety culture. Um, but the one thing that a lot of people in Northern California, and I would assume parts of Southern California are looking at right now is how they can sort of insulate themselves from a lot of these issues. And we talked a little about home hardening. The other thing people are looking to is solar and sort of closed circuit, you know, t- trying to get grid. off the grid. Um, and, and that brings up, I think, a lot of socioeconomic divides and, and potential sort of unintended consequences. Can you talk about that? Because I do think, you know, even to the point of seeing cities like San Francisco and San Jose say, we're just going to buy the infrastructure for PG&E. Well, what about everyone in Santa Rosa and Auburn and, and, and Butte County or whatever? I think this is a moment where the state needs to come together and make sure that all Californians are included in a solution. I agree. You know, where, Well, where I live, I live in Marin County and everyone's getting generators. And I think not far behind that are the people who are going to buy batteries to put in their garages from Tesla or Sunrun and solar panels to put on their roofs. Low-income people cannot access those solutions, not the generator, not the battery. And we need to make sure that they're included and they need help. When I talked to Governor Newsom a couple days ago and I asked him about the politics of all this, he said, well, I'm not thinking about politics. Uh, And then he kind (laughs) of rattled off eight things that he had done since he was governor, which, you know, is kind of politics. I mean, how how, the fact that we have politicians, the legislators, the governor – and everyone else, you know, thinking about these things, making these decisions, does that, how does that affect the kind of solutions we can come up with? Well, I think everyone in Sacramento remembers another energy crisis mm-hmm. and self-inflicted. Um, doesn't, yes. And this is not that, to be clear. Oh, it's just because um, we're talking about energy deregulation, which Pete Wilson signed into law and passed unanimously through the legislature. And which resulted partly in the recall of Governor Gray Davis. Um, I think 
Nobody wants to see that outcome. They want to craft solutions that are workable. Um, but I also think that uh, legislators are struggling with kind of how to come to grips with this and how to address the anchor that is so visceral for so many people that have been sitting in the dark for days on end um, in a way that's consistent with the time frame that those folks have expectations about the problem being solved. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the sort of deep policy and, and the nitty gritty, but a lot of this is just about humanity, right? Um, and Scott actually talked to Governor Gray Davis earlier this week about that angle of this, like the human experience. Let's listen to that. I mean, that's a very human moment. And to be there as Gavin Newsom is, I think, is, is extraordinarily memorable and important to people. If you help people out uh, in their moment of peril, uh, they will remember you for a very long time. And, of course, Newsom's been all over the state this week going to emergency centers, going to evacuation centers. He went to an elementary school on Thursday that had lost power. Um, you really I, have to strike a balance, too, yeah. because there's the empathy part, the sort of the consoler-in-chief kind of bit, and then also standing in the shoes of ratepayers and being angry, you know, at PG&E, but then at the same time you have to work to with, with PG&E. Yeah. So it's, it is a, it's a really tough balancing act. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tricky problem, especially uh, because PG&E needs to be healthy as a company in order to do the things that we desperately needed to do to create safety. If PG&E is still in bankruptcy or is, is perceived as very risky, it's going to have a hard time investing. And so we really need to be walk a very fine line between holding them accountable and making sure that they are healthy enough to fix the problem. We have a little less than a minute left. Um, a lot of uh, people, including Congressman Rokana and others, have been calling for like the state to take over PG&E. Um, I know you and I have discussed that there could be like a middle ground there where maybe the state took, you know, some shares, something like that. I mean, do you think that the state needs to exercise broadly a more sort of um, important role in really guiding this utility out of bankruptcy? I think that. The that mean all all options need to be on the table, and if it turns that out sounds that, like a politician. Well, no, but I mean I wouldn't normally say that, and I am not typically a fan of municipalization just because it takes so long, and I don't see it as we need short term solutions, even as we need these kind of longer medium term, maybe you know mm -hmm. ten year solutions. And I'm most concerned about the short term and making sure that we don't have more fires that kill people and destroy communities. And that people don't have to sit in the dark in the meantime, especially the folks that already struggle to afford California. And I'm not sure if, if someone can demonstrate to me that municipalization will achieve that goal, I support it. I just haven't seen that showing yet. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Michael Wara of Stanford, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for our Halloween edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineers are Jim Bennett and Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M. Lagos. Stay safe out there, everyone. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.